We're in John 8, and we've been there now. Uh, uh, we've been in John for a long time. We've been in John 8. Last week, we covered the first part of the chapter. We dealt with some, some one of the most beautiful and passionate stories in the Scriptures depicting Christ's character towards those who are in sin. And now we're back into the real flow of the, of the passage. If you remember, I, I argued for the case that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is really a break. It's an interruption in the flow of the passage. What we should see is a passage from John 7, 52. If we were following John's writing, we would go John 7, 52 right into 8, 12. And you would have this great exchange going on between the Pharisees and Christ in the temple at the feast of the of the tabernacle over Jesus both being the light of the world and Jesus being the water, the Spirit. Jesus' gift of the Spirit being the water, which is everlasting. Now you should, you should really catch on to some symbolism that Jesus is using in His teaching. So I want to kind of grab you with that, okay? I want to help you grab it. I want to help you see it. It's so clear once you look at it. Look back at John 6. If you just hold your place in John 8 and go to John 6. In John 6, beginning in verse 22, we have a teaching about Jesus being the bread of life. The bread of life. And if you'll think about that uh, that analogy where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats this bread will never die. When you, when you think about that, it's not, he says, it's not like the manna that your fathers ate in the desert. Now he's told us it's a symbol. The manna of Exodus 16 is a foreshadowing of Christ. The manna was the substitute. You see, the Israelites had begun to worship the fact that God had given the manna in the desert. And they even carried that manna by God's command in a cup in the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol to teach their children and their children's children of the mighty acts of God, right? And so they had done this for centuries, and they never understood what the symbol pointed towards. They never got it. They thought that manna was the purpose of the story, when in reality the manna simply was pushing them to look for the Messiah, the bread of life, that if you eat this bread, you will never die. Even if you die, as he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, later he's going to say, even when you die, you won't really die. You'll just be translated over into heaven. When you die, yet you will live. And so we have this beautiful symbol in in John 6 of the manna. Jesus explains the manna to them. Can you imagine the Pharisees hearing this teaching, the Jews hearing this teaching? They've been talking about manna in the desert for centuries, y'all. Thousands of years they've been talking about this manna. And this instance where they were hungry, they had no food, they had no way to have food. You've got to remember now, we, we often think about a tribe of people this size or something. Or the size of Joel Olstein's church, which is a lot of people, about 40,000 of them. And, and, and we think, man, that's a lot of people. Think about it. The Bible tells us in Exodus that 600,000 Israeli men left Egypt. About two and a half million people trekked out into the desert with no food and no water. I don't know if you've ever been to that desert. I haven't. I hope one day to get to see it with my own eyes. But I've read a lot about it. 
Do you realize the temperature in that desert gets to 140, 150 degrees? It's one of the hottest places on the face of the earth during the day. And at night, in the same nights, it can reach down below freezing. It is a terrible place to take a trip, okay? Not much unlike some of the trips I took as a kid in a non-air-conditioned car from here to Indiana. It felt like the desert, okay? As the sun was beaming down in that hatchback and hit me on the back of the neck. You know, it was hot. But it wasn't 150 degrees. And I had food. And if I didn't have food in the car, I got it outside the car. They had no food. And so imagine being in that desperate situation. You've run out of food. You've eaten all that Egypt gave you. Nothing else. You're in the middle of this desert. What are we going to do? And God so graciously rains honey wafers out of heaven. It fell like dew over the desert. Every morning it was new. Every morning it was new. And God was illustrating His grace through this manna. Because the manna is like His grace in the fact that it's new every morning. Now you understand why Jeremiah says it's new every morning. He was looking back at that manna. And he was saying, our God is a gracious, giving, loving God. He even rained bread down out of heaven new every morning. And so is His grace. Great is your faithfulness. Because every morning He rained down manna. And when they belly ached about being tired of eating the bread from heaven that only angels had eaten, right? We'd never seen anything like this stuff. Just the description in the Psalms is unbelievable. And they get tired of it, like all of us. Man, I'm tired of eating this food. Can we not get a change of diet? We need some meat. I'm a meat eater. What does God do? As A.W. Pink once said, he roasts, he roasts quails, wraps them in bacon, and drops them out of heaven. I don't know that he roasts them and wraps them in bacon. That's the way I eat quail. But maybe that's the way A.W. Pink ate quail. But nevertheless, the point is there. Even if it had feathers on it, he dropped quail out of heaven to feed them. So now they have manna and quail. But they weren't satisfied with that. They never got the symbolism involved in that. They were tired of God's grace. They presumed on God's grace. They disobeyed what He had commanded, right? Jesus says in John 6, your fathers ate that bread and they died in the desert. Not only did they die in the desert, most of them died in their sin and went to hell because they never believed in the Messiah of God. They believed in, they believed in a lot of things, but they did not believe in the grace and goodness of God in Christ. They didn't believe in it. They rejected it. Didn't want it. And so Jesus uses that symbol. He shows us the meaning of that symbol. Now John 7. Flip over to John 7. Because in John 7, he picks up another theme that we find in Exodus. In verse 37, he says, If you believe in him, that he, if, you, if you thirst, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this in regard to the Holy Spirit, which he would put inside of them, right? And you say, well, what symbol is it? It's Exodus 17. See, he rained bread out of heaven. And then they said, well, 
These wafers are making us thirsty. and We don't have anything to drink. And God said, Moses, go to the rock. Stand in front of the rock. Strike the rock. And the rock will give you water. It will give you water. It will give all the people water. Imagine that. I want you to... See, we don't believe the Bible, really. You and I don't believe the Bible. If we believe the Bible... We'd live different. We'd sing different. We'd preach different. We'd disciple our kids different. We believe this is a fairy tale book. We miss the magnificence of God's work. We have not taught our children the mighty works of God, have we? We've forgotten them. We've cut ourselves off from them. Well, that's the Old Testament. No, I want my kids to know Two and a half million people drank water out of a rock. Now you can call that a shepherd's trick if you want to, which is what the world does with it. Well, the shepherds, they often cracked rocks and got water out of it. Not for two and a half million people. Maybe enough to get them home that day, but not enough to feed two and a half, to, to, to quench the thirst of two and a half million people. Are you kidding me? This is the God you and I don't know. We evidence it by the way we live, by the way we talk, by the way we sing, by the way we confess, by the way we disciple, by the way we share the gospel. We don't believe it. We don't believe it. And Jesus looked at a crowd a lot like us and said, if you're thirsty, you come to me. If you come to me, I'll give you water. It'll spring up inside of you. Not like the rock which sprang out one time and fed them two and a half million people some water. It'll be overflowing water forever. Forever. It'll be abundant. We are satisfied. Listen, we are satisfied. Just confess it. Right now in your heart, confess. God, I'm satisfied with temporal blessings. If you help me pay my bills, if you keep a roof over my head, if you give me something to eat, if you keep my kids healthy, if you give me a job, if you make me popular, I'm happy. We're not any different than the Israelites in the desert who were happy with manna for a season. Then they wanted quail and they were happy with that. And they were happy with a little water from a rock. Never seen Christ. When's the last time you got your paycheck? And you said, oh God, I take this check from your hand through Christ who's given it to me. When's the last time you sat down over a meal and didn't say, somebody say the blessing, let's get that out of the way so we can eat. But you really poured your heart out, oh God, this is a simple token of your grace that we taste this food here, preparation for tasting the food at your table for all of eternity. When's the last time you saw in the symbols of God's daily grace the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not any different than the Israelites. No different than the Pharisees in our unbelief. Content with temporal blessings. Content with the manna and the water from a rock. When Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. Eat from me and you'll never die. You'll never be hungry again. I'm the water of life. If you believe in me, I'll quench your thirst not just now but forever. It will flow out of you. 
this water. Now, that's two symbols. Now, John 8. You would get the picture that John is, is telling the story for a purpose, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think John wrote this gospel for a purpose? This isn't some random history that he's writing. He's writing, and matter of fact, he tells you why he's writing. In John chapter 20, I write these things that you might believe in the Son of God. You might believe in Him. He's invoking belief from His audience. Not just that first audience, from this audience. Do you believe? Do you believe He's the bread from heaven? Do you believe He's the water that springs up to eternal life and never, never ceases to quench our thirst? Do you believe in John 8? Do you believe that He is the light of the world? Now that's where we are today. This third great symbol of the wilderness journeys. This one comes from Exodus 13. God brought them out of Egypt. He led them around the way. The long way around. And they were scared to death. Wouldn't you be? (laughs) Okay, great. We're leaving Egypt. We don't know how we're going to cross this desert with all these people. I mean, mothers had their babies. And they're headed out into the desert of 140 degrees and below 32 at night. And they don't have a house to get in. There's not enough wood to make a campfire big enough for two and a half million people in this desert. What are we going to do? Can you imagine the trepidation in their hearts in Exodus 13? And yet God says, I will give you a cloud by day. I'll give you a pillar of fire by night. And Jesus says, I am that pillar of fire. Now the Feast of the Tabernacles had talked about the water and also talked about the light. So let me tell you the background behind this teaching. I told you the symbolism behind it. Let me give you the background behind what he's about to say, okay? I want you to understand this. This is so important. This is so important because you miss the whole meaning of what he's saying if you don't know this. You start singing songs with lighters up in the air like people at a Christian college. I've seen this abused so much, you know, this silly emotionalism that goes on. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We are the light of the world or some silly stuff like that. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about not emotionalism. He's talking about real, factual truth. I am the light of the world. Now, why would he say that at the Feast of the Tabernacles? Because at the Feast of the Tabernacles, every night, they lit four great lampstands in the court of women. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I say court of women. The court of the women was a court that all Jewish people could go into. Both male and female and child could go in. Right? They could go into this. They couldn't go into the court which was set apart for only the men. The women couldn't go that far. And then the men couldn't go inside where the priest, and the priest couldn't go inside the Holy of Holies, lest it was the high priest at a given time and a given place. That, right? So, so th- what he's saying is, I'm, he's, Jesus is in this place during the Feast of the Tabernacle. Look at verse 20. John 8, 20 says, He was at the treasury where they gathered the money. Now, he wasn't in a small back room. That's not some back room where they counted money. 
The treasury was the court of the women. It's where all Israelites brought their offerings to God. And there were, there were boxes. Actually, they were golden-laden uh, trumpets. That was their offering box. We got an offering box. Theirs is prettier than ours. It was golden, overlaid with gold. And it had specific causes. Each one had a specific purpose which you gave the money for. And Jesus was in this room a lot, obviously, because why? He saw the widow put her mind in the box, right? And he said she gave more than everybody else did because she gave all she had. So this is one of Jesus' favorite spots to hang out. Why? Because all the Jews are there. Men, women, children, they're all hanging out. People are giving in the treasury. People are preparing for their rituals and their worship. They're out in this court. And Jesus is there in John 8, verse uh, 20. It says he was in the treasury. That's this court of the women. So there's a lot of crowd of people around him, okay? It's also why it says that they wanted to arrest him, but it wasn't his time yet. You couldn't very well walk up and arrest the guy in front of everybody without a charge. I mean, everybody, in, in, everybody was there. Everybody in broad daylight would have seen what they were doing. They were coming with a false pretense to arrest him. So, that, so God, he's following God's timing down to the letter. And it's giving him protection. His obedience brings him protection. He's not off in a corner somewhere with the Pharisees arguing. The hall of the Sanhedrin was right, right off of this court. He could have went there. But what would have happened if he went in the back room with them? They'd arrested him. He didn't go back there to argue, did he? He stayed out with all the people. God was protecting his son. It wasn't time yet. So here he is in the court. All these people are around. This is the end of the feast. How do we know it's the end of the feast? Because John chapter 7 says that he rose up and cried out with a loud voice at the end of the feast. Right? And this is the teaching that comes right on the heels of him saying, I'm the water. Now he says, I'm the light. Now remember the water in the Feast of the Tabernacles, the water was symbolized by the last day they went out, the high priest with a pot, and all the people processed out with him to Siloam, drew up water, and they came back and they sang, they danced, and they celebrated that God would come and bless them and, and poured out the water on the, on the altar in the temple to symbolize the pouring out of God's Spirit and His presence with them. This dated all the way back to the beginning of the feast in Exodus, okay? There was a second symbolism in this feast, and now we're talking about this symbolism, all right? So stay with me. Every night they lift these huge candles, lavaliers, whatever you want to call them. I'm not talking about the kind you put in your house. When they lit these four candles... Philo says it lit up the whole city of Jerusalem. There was not one courtyard that did not have the shine of the light from the temple. What they were representing, what was being represented was this pillar of fire in the wilderness. Because the pillar of fire, when it was with them, lit up the whole desert. It was like daylight. God's presence in the fire was like daylight before them. And so they've been reenacting this in celebration and, and in celebration of God's gift to them in the wilderness, right? But they missed the symbolism. They didn't realize this is just a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Christ, who will come and be the light of the world. We won't need these lavaliers here. We won't need these torches. We won't need a pillar. We've got the real Christ with us. So now, think about this. 
the last night of the feast. They've lit these lavaliers every night. Okay, And when they lit them, they did this big celebratory dance, and the priest would have the torches, and they would dance, and they would sing, and they would feast, and they would drink, and they would celebrate God in his presence with them. The last night, they wouldn't light the, the candles. The feast is coming to an end. It's all over with for another year. It's kind of like Christmas. Put up the decorations. It's over. Get them out next year, right? That's what they were getting ready to do. And now Jesus stands up. And we find what he says in John 8 as he begins to teach them, saying, look at this. He's screaming this out now. They're not going to light the torches tonight. The feast is over, Jesus. And what does he say? I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying you don't need the candlesticks. I'm what you've been looking for. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying the symbolism only pointed to me. It's null and void. You don't need the symbolism anymore. You've got me. You don't need these candles anymore. I'm the light of the world. Believe and follow me and you'll never be in darkness again. You won't wait for a year for the temple to be lit back up like a fortress. You'll have the light of life inside of you. It's the light of the whole world. And you'll never be in darkness. This light is so significant. John started out, remember back in John chapter 1, talking about the light. He called called Jesus the light then, the light of life, in verse 4. Can I say something to you? The light of Christ represents God's presence. It represents God's protection. And it represents His guidance. Just like that fiery pillar in the wilderness protected them. How did it protect them? Well, it kept the the cloud, the same cloud, by the way, which I spent some time this week thinking about that cloud. Can you imagine how beautiful it must have been? I mean, it had to be distinct. It wasn't as if they thought, well, that might be the cloud, or this might be, you know, the cloud was there. And it was thick. It was thick because it, it, it provided a barrier between the armies of Egypt and the people of Israel when they had their backs to the Red Sea. It was thick. It was with them. It was tangible. They could see it. And Jesus says, I'm that cloud. I'm the tabernacle. I'm God with you. I'm the light of the world. I will protect you. Protects us. That cloud protected them from the extreme heat, you see. It went up over them, and those two and a half million people walked in the shade all day. They didn't walk in the sun. They walked in the shade. 
They walked in the shade of the presence of the Most High God. And yet they belly ached. And they complained and they grumbled the whole trip. And before you cast a stone at them, you claim Christ to be in your life. Are you content? Are you content with what he's provided for you physically? Are you content with your wife or your husband? Are you content with the number of children that he's blessed you with? Or even the lack of children? Or even death of children? Are you content? Or are you grumbling? Because to say that you're not content and grumble makes you no different than the people of Israel. They sat under the presence of God and grumbled and complained about His provisions and you claim to have Christ and grumble about His provisions. It's no different. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm that pillar. I protect you. I provide for you. It was a provision of shade. It was a provision of light. It was a protection from wild animals. It was a protection from Pharaoh's army. And He's a protection for us. The enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that they might have abundant life and that they might have it more freely. The enemy seeks who he might devour, the faith that he might devour, Peter says. And yet Jesus stands in, our, in God's presence on our behalf saying, that's one of mine, Father. You gave that one to me. Satan can't have that one. He stands over your life and says, you can sift him like sand, but you can only go so far. He stands over your life and says, you can take his wife, you can take his children, you can take his possessions. You can't have him. He's mine. He protects us. He provides for us. And He guides us. Jesus guides us. He guides us through His Word. That's a favorite of this church. We love the Word here. He also guides us in prayer. He also guides us when we walk in the Spirit. Those last two aren't the favorite of this church. They're not your favorite. They scare you to death. We can be honest with each other. We're all in the same family. It scares you to death to think that God literally guides you by you walking in the Spirit. And you know why? Because you start thinking, oh, they're going to think I'm charismatic. I'm a weirdo. I'm strange. I really wish they thought that about us. <laughs> I really thought the world looked at our church and thought, these people are kind of crazy. They're charismatic. They're they really on fire for Jesus. I'm afraid what they see is scholasticism, academic, know the right things, but have zero feeling about Christ. Do you know it's possible to be saved, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and not walk in the Spirit? It seems to be because Paul's always saying, walk in the Spirit. Stand in the Spirit. He's given these commands to us. 
And I'm telling you, Jesus, by saying he's the light of the world, is saying the same thing. I'll guide you. And when Jesus guides us, we go way out of our comfort zone. One of the proofs to me that we don't live in this guidance very well is that we're not outside our comfort zone. We do what we like to do, what comes natural to us. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And in saying that, he said, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, and I'm going to guide you. I'm not promising you're going to like the route. I'm not promising you're going to be comfortable with where I'm taking you. But I'm going to guide you. Do you know the sense of assurance that must have been with them as they trailed that pillar or cloud or or fire three-fifths of a mile? God told them, stay three-fifths of a mile behind me. He's exact. Don't get too close and presume you know where I'm going. Because I might take a turn you're not expecting. You stay just close enough you can see me and just far enough that when I move, you move. When I stop, you stop. And if you say you believe in the living God, Jesus Christ, what you're saying is I believe that He does those same things in my life that God did in the wilderness with the children of Israel. I'm following Him. Do you notice that in the first verse there, in verse 12? He who follows me will not be in darkness anymore. You say, it's dark around me, Carl. I don't know which way to go. I'm confused. You're not following Jesus That statement doesn't exist for those who are following Jesus. That lack of confidence and assurance doesn't exist in those who are walking in the Spirit. And it really doesn't matter if it makes me uncomfortable or makes you uncomfortable. It's just the truth. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll never be in darkness. The world's a dark place. We need protection. We need provision. We need guidance. And the Pharisees do exactly what some of you are probably doing right now. You're excusing yourself. You bear witness about yourself. Therefore, your witness can't be true. They're on a technicality. You see, when the truth hits you in the face, your natural inclination, my natural inclination, is to, is to find a technical way around it. I don't like what that says, so, well, I'll stand over here. Some of you are doing it right now. I'm just just looking at you. I'm reading you. And by your body language, you say, "I I don't want Christ to be that for me. I don't want to follow Him. I'm afraid of that. I don't want Him to provide for me. I want to provide for myself. I don't want Him to protect me. I think I'm doing a good enough job without Him. It's all right. It's just like the Pharisees. You're bearing witness about yourself. You can't be telling the truth. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Because he's going to do this with you this week about this message. Jesus then, after they question him about his testimony, Jesus claims to be God. Jesus just says, I am. Like it or not, I am. That declaration This is the second of the seven I am statements in the book of John. John organizes work around seven miracles, seven teachings, and seven I am's. And this is the second set of the seven I am's. And now he repeats the the words I am over and over again in the passage. He said, I am the light of the world. Now look down. 
So he comes down and he says in verse, in verse 14, that he, that again, in the, in the, in the original language, we see this I am as a declarative statement of his divinity in verse 14. And he, he just, in verse 16, he says, but I am and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They think they've caught him on a technicality. The law required the witness of at least two, if best three, for the conviction or the establishment of any fact. And Jesus says, you want two witnesses? I am, and my Father is. I am God, and I witness about myself, and my Father is God, and he witnesses about me. What other witnesses do I need? Is his question back to them. Jesus says, you want to play the technicality game? I'm inside the lines of the law. Notice how he talks to them. Very rough. In your law. Now he separated himself from them. Oh, you want to take my law and you want to use it this way? Okay. In your law, it says I had to have two witnesses. Well, I am, and my Father is. So we're both witnesses to my divinity, to my being the light of the world, to my being the bread of life, to my being the water of life. I have confirmation. Now, now, now that they've, they've tried that route. That didn't work. So what'd they do? Well, where is your Father then? We want to question Him. And Jesus says, you don't know who my father is. And I want to tell you, in a room this size, there's people in here that Jesus is saying that about you. You don't know who my father is. You don't know who my father is because you don't know who I am. And you can't know my father unless you know me. The sad truth is, just like a lot of Pharisees, a lot of people come to churches like Grace Fellowship their whole life, and they know a lot of things about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And it's obvious because they don't have his presence, they don't seek his provision, and they don't look to him as their God. And so, I would just say to you, in these questions, do you find yourself questioning the truth? Do you find yourself saying, well, I'm not sure if I agree with that interpretation of the light of the world. I like this safer, this different interpretation Or do you find yourself accepting, repenting of your sin and calling out to Christ to be your protection, be your provision, to be your guide? Do you find yourself saying, well, Jesus is good, but he's not enough? Or do you find yourself saying, Jesus is enough? Do you find yourself in a place like this and in a message like this saying, well, how do we know that this is true? I I need more evidence. I need more proof. Or do you find yourself saying Jesus is proof enough if he says that I believe it? Do you find yourself saying, well, how do we know that the Father bears witness about Jesus? I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. How do we know? Well, Jesus would say, you don't know me. And because you don't know me, you don't know my Father. Jesus is God. 
He is the light of the world. We live in a day and age where that statement causes lots of ruffled feathers. How do we apply this message of Grace Fellowship? Simple. Very simple application today, okay? First of all, we unashamedly profess that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and he is God. And that's not just profess it to others, that's professing it to ourselves, confessing it. That's a day that should be a daily, daily activity for us. That we go to him in prayer and in his word and say, You are who you say you are. I believe. I believe. That's the first application. Believe it. It is true. He is the light of the world. Secondly, as we believe it, we begin to rely on Him for the protection, provision, and guidance that only He can give. That means that when you get to your daily work tomorrow, you're not relying on your abilities nor your boss's abilities. You're relying on Christ's ability. That means when you're in that conversation and you're searching for that right word, you believe that He will give you the right word to say. You believe it will come because He said it will come and you'll bear witness about Him. It means that you will, that you will love your wife the way Christ loves the church. You say, that's not humanly possible. You're right. He'll have to provide it for you. He'll have to guide you in it. And ladies, you'll love your wife as the church loves Christ. And you'll submit to that husband. How does it apply a million ways in raising your children and living your life and in and, and your daily activities? Finally, it will apply because you will leave here not only believing and professing it, but confessing it to others. The fear I have for myself and for you is that we don't do enough confessing about Jesus in public to others. I want you to think back to when you first got married. Some of you just got married, so you don't have to think too far back. Some of you is 50 years ago. You got to kind of put the Rolodex in and rewind. Call that memory up. Did anybody have to tell you to talk about your marriage and your wife? Anybody have to beg and plead? I thought I heard you got married. Yeah, well, yeah, I did. Did you see that game last night? No. When you got married, if anybody even hinted towards that direction, you jumped all over it, didn't you? Boy, me and my wife. Boy, we did this. And boy, we enjoy doing this. Man, it's so good. It's all you could talk about, wasn't it? And so, and, and you sang her praises. She was perfect when you married her. Now, she might not be now, but she was then. Burnt bread was wonderful for breakfast. Scrape the burnt part off and eat it anyway. Put some jelly on it, lots of jelly. Right? Everything she did was perfect. So why is it not that way with Christ? Why is it that lost people had to beg us to talk about it? 
Could it be that we're not walking and following Him? And so we don't see Him as the light of the world. We're out in the darkness, bumping around. We've left the presence of God. And so my final application would be, if you're thirsty, come drink. Come drink the first time, come drink again. If you're hungry, come eat the bread of life. Eat the first time and be saved or eat it again and be renewed. You're lost in the wilderness and you're dark and you don't know where to go. Get three-fifths of a mile behind him and watch where he goes and go with him. Believe in him. He's the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we just want to praise you.